0: From PRX. Today on Studio 360. If I'd had a couple drinks and I was around a cartoonist, I was really ready to get into fisticuffs over Family Circus.
1: Why cartoonist Linda Berry loves the most unhip comic in the newspaper, The Family Circus. That strip was deliverance for me. I always felt this
0: happiness, like there's that world, that world exists somewhere, and It's a place I'd like to get to. And then one day I did get there.
2: Plus. We have this attitude about the old dour Willa Cather never smiling and just thinking about pioneer ladies all the time.
1: The unjust way that Willa Cather gets short shrift.
3: It seems like she sort of was purposefully left out of the canon and I don't understand it because she's amazing.
1: The underappreciated greatness of Willa Cather's novel My Antonia that's ahead on Studio 360, right after this. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done.
3: Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson.
4: What do you have against the family
5: circus? Okay. You sit down and read your paper, and you're enjoying your entire two-page comic spread, right? And and then there's the family fucking circus, bottom right-hand corner just waiting to suck, and that's the last thing you read, so it spoils everything you read before.
1: This is Katie Holmes and Timothy Oliphant in the 1999 movie Go. You could just not read it. I hate
5: it. Yet I'm uncontrollably drawn to it.
1: They're talking about the family circus. Most comic strips aren't very cool, but it's about the most uncool one these days.
3: It's so true. Bill Keane's The Family Circus just isn't funny anymore.
5: The
2: family circus was never funny, Pinky.
1: The comic strip started in 1960, and it's about an idyllic family a mother, father, and four adorable small children. What the strip mainly delivers are the kids' cutesy malapropisms and observations.
3: Don't you remember the time little Jeffy gazed out at the sunset and said, Look, Mommy, the sun is taking a nap, too. <laughs> no the magic is gone.
1: The cartoonist Bill Keene based the characters on his actual kids. Three-year-old Jeffy was modeled on his son, Jeff Keen, who took over the drawing and writing of the strip eight years ago. But no matter who's drawing it, the family circus has been relentlessly mocked for years as treacly and cloying. To who? To to who? Somebody who just like, I'm sorry, I
0: need more bitterness in my world. I mean, you don't go to a family circus for bitterness. or I mean, you go to it exactly for that. You know, it's like saying an M&M is too sweet. It's like you're eating an M&M. What's it supposed to be? My name is Linda Barry, and I'm a writer and a cartoonist and a teacher.
1: Linda Barry got a cult following with her darkly funny strip, Ernie Pook's Comique, which ran in alternative papers for 30 years. She's also the author of lots of graphic novels, memoirs, and other nonfiction books. Her latest, called Making Comics, is based on the exercises she uses in her classes at the University of Wisconsin. And this fall, Barry got one of the MacArthur Genius Grants. So, surprise, she of all people goes to the mat for the least fashionable comic of them all. The Family Circus, my favorite strip in the world.
0: I discovered it as a really little kid in Seattle. I was probably about four or five. It was before I learned to read. So, I come from an immigrant family. My mom came from the Philippines. And uh, my dad, who's white, split early on. And we lived in a house with a lot of immigrants, not a lot of books, but we did have the daily paper. So I remember looking at the comics pages because I would always just look at them for the pictures and picking, I think it was four or five strips that I was going to read for the rest of my life once I learned how to read. Brenda Starr and Don and there were a couple other ones. Um, but Family Circus, that one really meant a lot to me. The Family Circus is a comic strip about a typical white suburban mom and dad and these little kids, uh, Jeffy, Billy, Dolly, and PJ. It stands out right away because it's drawn in a circle. The lines are really, really clean. There's not much to it, and then there's one little line of caption underneath that's usually in a sans-serif type. It's just small little things and little things that, that kids actually say. Dumb little things like Billy wanting his mom, instead of to just write Billy on his lunch sack, he wants her to write Billy the Kid. But not a lot happens. So I kind of learned to read that strip without the words. So I used to just love to look in that circle. And within that circle, there was a family that just looked like they were having a really happy life. And it was sort of the opposite life that I was having in my home. I was born into a family that was really traumatized by the war um, during the Japanese occupation of uh, the Philippines in World War II. They were in hiding, and none of them came out of it intact. And so uh, my mom, she didn't have a whole lot of love to give me and my brothers. My mom worked at a hospital. She was a janitor at a hospital, but she was a little bit of a kleptomaniac, and she loved scissors. My mom, if you left a pair of scissors in a room with her and you left, you'd come back and you wouldn't know where the scissors were. She stole scissors. And so she worked at a hospital, so she stole all kinds of crazy surgical scissors, little tiny scissors that I stole from her. And I used to use them to cut out all the characters with these little precise scissors. I'd get the comic section out and, and my goal was to really be able to cut along that black line, not to cut into their bodies, but not to leave too much paper around them either and they were perfect because i could hide these characters you know my mom had some i don't know she had mental issues i think and so if she found out that you were attached to anything she'd take that or do something to it so these little comic characters were perfect these little black and white characters those were my toys i feel really really close to all those characters and to this day when i see it i look at it to see what the hell everybody's up to in that strip <laughs> Well, I just opened. I just opened it right away to seeing Jeffy um, sitting, and he's just sitting in a pair of shorts, looking to the side, and he has his finger poking into his stomach, and he's saying, "What's supposed to happen when I press my belly button?" Or um, there's another one of Daddy at serving dinner, and everybody has their uh, mashed potatoes on the plate, and Billy's saying to his dad, "No gravy for me. I like mine blank." That is exactly, I mean, kids say stuff like this all the time. Oh, there's, um, there's another one of Billy carrying PJ on his back, and he's saying, I'm practicing to be a daddy. I don't know why people think these are, <laughs> are bad strips. I think they're wonderful. The older I got, the more I found out that it wasn't cool. I didn't think people had a strong feeling about it until I'd be around a bunch of other cartoonists and I'd mention how much I loved it and then just how much, how I got teased about it. And then if I'd had a couple drinks and I was around a cartoonist, I was really ready to get into fisticuffs over family circus. Like, how can you, you grew up in a Filipino family and how can you like that? And it's, you know, this whole thing of white people and they have money and it's like, I don't care about that. They looked happy And there was no part of me at age four going, well, they're white and they're in the suburbs, so I shouldn't like this. It's like it didn't even occur to me, you know? Because most people got attached to peanuts, but for me, peanuts never grabbed me. It's nothing wrong with peanuts, obviously, but there was something about the life that was, these depressed kids that was a little too close to how I was already living.
3: I feel miserable. Nobody likes me.
0: Family circus, on the other hand, it was a place of, it was a place I wanted to be. You know, just like in the fairy tales that, you know, fairy tales often are about redemption or some deliverance out of a a terrible, terrible situation. I was already in the terrible situation and that strip was deliverance for me, even if I could just see it. I always felt this happiness like there's that world, that world exists somewhere and it's a place I'd like to get to. And then one day I did get there. I had always heard that when you see great art, you burst into tears, right? And I'd always try, right? I'd go to a museum and I'd stare at a painting and really hope that I'd start sobbing from its beauty. It never happened. And then um, one day I was at the National Cartoonist Society convention. A friend of mine um, said, you like family circus, right? And I go, yeah. And they introduced me to Jeff Keane. And that's when I burst into tears and it was very ugly. It was me turning red and like drooling and snot coming and me walking toward Jeff and him backing up like, what the hell is going on with this chick? Like, "Ah, I love you so much. Um, He actually thought I was joking um, because he also knew that it was an uncool strip. But, I mean, when I shook his hand, uh, I the, part of the reason I was crying so much was I realized I had crossed into the circle. I had stepped into it, and the way I did it was by drawing a picture. That that's the whole reason I got to meet him and touch his hand. is because I drew a picture, and I became a cartoonist. The beautiful thing is he actually drew me, and I got to be in the strip one day as a character. And it looks just like me, except for I'm a little kid. I, <laughs> Oh, I love looking at it. So it's um, Jeffy has a little kid. He was also a redhead. I was a redhead. And looking at his father, Bill, and I'm standing next to him and I look just like me. You can tell it's me. I always wear a little bandana tied and there's my red hair and I'm wearing jeans and a shirt just like I do. And he has me holding a sketchbook. And Jeffy's saying to uh, Bill Keene, Daddy, this is Linda. We decided to be best friends even though she's a girl. When I saw that, it was a shock and a beautiful shock. He did this thing when he gave me the original. He talked to me like uh, like I was part of this world, you know, and, and he put his arm around me. He says, see, you look like you belong. You look like you've always been in it. It just amazes me. The whole thing amazes me that you can be attached to something and then be part of it. Um, and then also be willing to just... Uh, fight anyone who tries to say a bad word about those people <laughs> I really love having that little scruffy cousin attitude don't you talk bad about my friends <laughs> Right now, it just seems like it's really difficult to find what's beautiful and incredible about the world. It's a very stressful time. But the fact is that all of us are born into a world that is full of characters. Just full, full, full of characters. And humans have this really interesting ability to find the characters that they need. I don't know, I feel like I've got the family I wanted. Or the family that I needed. Family Circus gave me the family that I needed at the time when I needed it. And I think that that's what the best art can do. And the best art can be in the oddest little place, including in a little circle in the corner of a comics page that's delivered to a a poor family's house, you know, in Seattle. I mean, I just think about my little paper boy running by and throwing that paper up onto my porch and throwing life toward me (laughs) <laughs> you know every day after after he
1: was done with school he'd throw some life toward me Linda Berry is a cartoonist, writer and professor at the University of Wisconsin. Her new book Making Comics is out now. Our story was produced by Evan Chung and scored by Tommy Bazarian. So what's something you like that's unpopular or is just really surprising that somebody like you liked something like that? That is your guilty pleasure. Tell us about it in an email or voice memo and send it to incoming at studio360.org. Coming up, the Great Plains setting of Willa Cather's brilliant novel, My Antonia.
6: Cather country. It's being in the country and listening to the fact that there isn't any city noise and that there's something just almost spiritual about the sounds that you do hear. You know, the wind blowing through and the feel of the sun.
1: How Willa Cather did my home state, Nebraska, proud but never gets her due. That's next on Studio 360. Studio
3: 360.
1: Some great novelists get the acclaim and readership they deserve, and some don't. Willa Cather is one that has not. How come? Cather was a woman, but her contemporaries, Edith Wharton and Virginia Woolf, have giant reputations. I think it was more because she wasn't an emphatically modern writer and because she wrote about the American Midwest, including Nebraska, where she spent her childhood. As a kid, I knew all about Cather and her underappreciation because I grew up in Nebraska, where my seventh-grade English teacher read one of her novels aloud to us, and where I spent a lot of time in that vast, beautiful, melancholy landscapes that Cather writes about with a Scandinavian grandfather like one of her characters and a father who, like Cather, graduated from the University of Nebraska and a mother who was a serious Cather promoter. So, unlike other Americans of my generation, I never confused her novels with Little House on the Prairie. Like Cather, I left Nebraska and moved to New York City in Greenwich Village to become a magazine editor and novelist, which is only when and where I really started appreciating her work and how clueless Americans really are about it. And, like Mother, Like Son, became kind of a Cather evangelist. And so... For the latest installment of our American Icon series, we dispatched producer Sally Herships out to my home state to tell the story of one of Willa Cather's great novels, My Antonia.
4: When she was in college, Willa Cather took the role of a merchant in a play at a community theater. It was a male part. That wasn't a big deal. Women did play guys. But what was unusual was that she was already prepared to play the part. Wait, that's a photo of Cather? That's a photo of Cather. Whoa, wait a minute. I have to explain. Cather had a buzz cut. That's a big deal in 1890s small-town Nebraska. And that's Ashley Olson. I'm talking to. She's executive director of the Willa Cather Foundation in Red Cloud, Nebraska. Red Cloud itself is tiny and looks like something you'd see on an old postcard. The main stretch of town is a few blocks. Wide streets, two stories, old brick buildings. The Cather Center takes up a huge chunk of one of the blocks. That's where we are. We're taking a walk through an exhibit. (laughs) Please tell us what we're looking at
3: here. Well, this is Cather dressed for the role of someone. A male someone. A male someone. So she's wearing a mustache and holding a top hat.
4: The pictures surprise me because in the pictures we typically see of Cather today, she looks matronly, like someone's aunt. Our memory of Cather has somehow gone off. And the same thing seems to have happened to My Antonia, one of her best books. People seem to think the book is like Little House on the Prairie, but it doesn't make any sense because Willa Cather was a badass. And My Antonia is amazing. Let's start at the beginning of My Antonia. My Antonia. Two children, a boy and a girl, arrive in Nebraska in the dead of night. It's the 1880s. The boy's name is Jim. He's 10 years old, and his parents are dead. Jim is the narrator of the book, and he's traveled to Nebraska by train and then wagon to live with his grandparents.
5: There seemed to be nothing to see. No fences, no creeks or trees, no hills or fields. If there was a road, I could not make it out in the faint starlight. There was nothing but land. Not a country at all, but the material out of which countries are made.
4: The girl's name is Antonia. She traveled on the same train west, but she's a little different than Jim, as Jake, the hired hand sent to escort him on the trip, points out. Her parents are alive, but the whole family is fresh off the boat from Bohemia, the modern-day Czech Republic.
5: They can't any of them speak English, except one little girl, and all she can say is, We go Blackhawk, Nebraska. She's not much older than you, 12 or 13 maybe, and she's as bright as a new dollar. Don't you want to go ahead and see her, Jimmy? She's got the pretty brown eyes, too.
4: Although Jim and Antonia have arrived in the same place, they face very different futures. Jim is comfortable with his grandparents, who are experienced farmers. But when winter sets in, Antonia's father can't handle how difficult the life of a homesteader is. The family is living in a hole dug in the frozen ground. And not too long afterwards, he commits suicide. He shoots himself in the head. A priest has to be found, but because the territory is so sparsely settled and it's winter, arranging the funeral takes days. In the meantime, the body of Antonia's father lies in the barn, spooking the animals until the smell of death freezes along with the body. The book was a bestseller. Andy Jewell, who's editor of the Willa Cather Archive at the University of Nebraska, says Cather was a bold advocate for her own independence as a woman and other women. And she was interested in a lot of other big ideas. She wrote about war, won a Pulitzer Prize. But somehow by the time she died in 1947, Cather's reputation had staled. She was seen as dated, old, musty. And outside of schools and scholars, the reputation of my Antonia was stale as well.
2: We have this sort of attitude about the old dour Willa Cather never smiling um, and just thinking about pioneer ladies all the time when it's just like so not even completely true. Andy Jewell also co-edited a book of her letters. She was this sophisticated, funny, sarcastic, opinionated, biting person, very powerful, very determined in her life. And that quality of that character in the letters is one of the most profound things about reading them.
3: August 1st, 1893. My dear Mariel. Roscoe and I went to one of their meetings, and it was really quite endurable, except a great deal of singing by a young lady who could not sing. You see, the meeting was at the fair damsel's house, so it was her great and only chance to go on the program as often as she wished. And she sang twelve times, not counting encores. The twelfth song had a refrain beginning, Pray Does This Music Charm Thy Heart, which, considering the universal disgust, was a somewhat delicate question.
2: A lot of people remarked on her conversational ability, and her um, one interviewer pointed out that she was the sort of woman who would call somebody a muttonhead Um, (laughs) you know, And, and just like she was very frank and very explicit with people and didn't
4: really suffer fools. Cather sometimes signed her letters William. She lived with her partner, Edith Lewis, for 40 years. Is it safe to say or accurate to say that Cather was a lesbian?
2: Yes, I certainly think so. Some of the biographies that are now quite old, like from the 80s, and some newer works too, made a claim which seems to me ridiculous. Okay, they would say Cather's emotional attachments were to women, but she probably lived a a celibate life. In
4: 1918, My Antonia was published. It was the last of a trilogy, three books Cather wrote about the prairie, and it's considered one of her best works.
5: The wagon jolted on, carrying me I knew not whither. I don't think I was homesick. If we never arrived anywhere, it did not matter. Between that earth and that sky, I felt erased, blotted out. I did not say my prayers that night. Here, I felt what would be would be. So
4: this book, there are parents' deaths, there are wolves, there's suicide, rape, murder. Mm -hmm. How did it end up with this, like, fusty, dusty reputation?
2: I don't know. I sometimes think it was bad marketing. Um, It might have been... The sort of cultural expressions of the pioneer experience that that kind of followed Cather, you know, whether it was Laura Ingalls Wilder or um, Western TV shows, but how it got the reputation. Probably some bad book covers with, uh, you know, high-necked dresses and, um, and and grain blowing in the wind. I think that's why when I, fr- I didn't want to read Catherine when I was a young person, I thought it'd be, oh, how boring it's all about windmills and cows, you know. And then I read it and realized, no, it's about, like, uh, emotion and, and danger and uh, love and sex and,
4: you know, all these other things. Which is where the book's covers fail. Because when Jim and Antonia, the main characters, first arrive in Nebraska as little children, they find that life there is far grimmer and darker than an illustrated windmill or a cow. The year before My Antonia was published, Congress began, for the first time, really tightening immigration laws in the U.S.
5: They ain't the same, Jimmy, he kept saying in a hurt tone. These foreigners ain't the same. You can't trust them to be fair. It's dirty to kick a feller. You heard how the women turned on you and after all we went through on account of them last winter. They ain't to be trusted. I don't want to see you get too thick with any of them.
4: Julie Olin Amatorp wrote a book about Willa Cather and Edith Wharton. She says because the Shemaritas were immigrants, they were viewed with suspicion by almost everyone. Even when Antonia's mother tries to give Jim's family a gift.
3: Yeah. It's dried mushrooms that they have gathered in the forests of Bohemia and brought all the way to the New World. And Antonia even tells Jim, it's very good. It makes things very good. But when they get home, Jim's grandmother is just like, eh, weird foreign food and dumps it in the garbage. But, you know, it seems almost like a throwaway, but it's it's a little message about xenophobia and you lose something, you lose out on something when you're xenophobic. So. Yeah,
4: I remember reading that part and thinking, oh, my God, what would we pay today
3: for <laughs> an ounce of dried mushrooms <laughs> from Czechoslovakia? Yes, exactly. <laughs> $212 a pound for truffles or something. <laughs> so, yeah, it's something like that. And they throw it away.
4: Cather's Wild West is far from the West we know from Hollywood. Cowboy boots and covered wagons. Austin Graham teaches English at Columbia.
3: You can imagine a version of the novel Cather could have written that would have been entirely sentimental. It would have been about the you know, the virtues of country living. But Antony's father, is also an immigrant story. You know, a man whose life is significantly worse when he comes to the United States, who's utterly isolated, uh, who takes his life and is buried alone in the middle of nowhere because the Norwegians won't allow his body into their cemetery and there's nowhere else for him to go.
4: Because Antonia's father has committed suicide, his body is shunned by the church. So the Shemerdas are forced to bury him on their own property. Jim's family are also immigrants. They're Norwegian. But the prairie has a caste system. Immigrants from Western Europe are okay. It's immigrants from other places, like the Shemerdas, who are
3: not you know, very, very memorably, right, in Jim's grandfather's funeral speech for Antonia's father, say, you know, we failed these people. Um, We weren't as welcoming to these strangers in the land as we ought to have been.
5: I thought his prayer remarkable. I still remember it. O great and just God, no man among us knows what the sleeper knows, nor is it for us to judge what lies between him and thee. He prayed that if any man there had been remiss toward the stranger come to a far country, God would forgive him and soften his heart.
4: Recently, Brett Stevens, an op-ed writer at the New York Times, wrote about My Antonia. He says the novel is a story of a country that can overcome prejudice. He wrote about how the narrator's grandfather helped the Shimeridas, forgave them their debts, and put petty quarrels aside. Here he is, reading from his column.
7: It's in such moments that my Antonia becomes an education in what it means to be American, to have come from elsewhere with very little, to be mindful amid every trapping of prosperity of how little we once had and were, to protect and nurture those newly arrived wherever from as if they were our own immigrant ancestors, equally scared, equally humble, and equally determined.
4: Cather has packed my Antonia with female characters, but as you read about what happens to them, it can be hard to understand how the book could have been written by a feminist author, like Lena Lingard, another young immigrant who was accused of putting a farmer, Ole Benson, who was married, out of his head.
5: After the last hymn had been sung and the congregation was dismissed, Ole slipped out to the hitch bar and lifted Lena on her horse. That in itself was shocking. A married man was not expected to do such things.
4: Julie Olin Ammentorp describes Lena as a Marilyn Monroe figure. Sexy and naive, but not really. It seemed like she was being penalized for doing nothing but existing. Exactly. She just happened to be really gorgeous.
3: Yeah. yeah, kind of her crime is being too sexy inside all of those worn-out clothes. <laughs> it's like, she couldn't help it. <laughs> it's like, you know. Heather does really interesting things with, I think, the way people really are. Everybody thinks that, you know, Oli and Lena must be having, you know, a sexual relationship. And, you know, later Lena says, he just liked to talk to me. He was lonely out there. I was lonely out there because she's out all day in the fields, like, taking care of the sheep or goats or whatever it is. She's like, we're just hanging out.
5: Maybe you lose a steer and learn not to make somethings with your eyes at married men, Mrs. Shimerda told her hectoringly. Lena only smiled her sleepy smile. I never made anything to him with my eyes. I can't help it if he hangs around, and I can't order him off. It ain't my prairie. It's not that Heather is beating women
4: up. Instead, with each story, she's showing a different example of how a woman's life could turn out. Unfortunately, Antonia gets thrown every obstacle in the book. She falls for a loser, a guy named Larry Donovan, who works on the railroad— Larry promised her a ring, but then he leaves her without the ring, but expecting a baby. Antonia decides to have the child on her own. Julie Olin Ammentorp says, if you think this is a woman being weak, you are so wrong. This is about being resilient and human. And oftentimes when people are both good and bad, like Antonia falling for that douchey guy whose name I've blocked out, um, that gray area that murkiness that complexity makes things more fascinating
3: and i mean and that's how we are you know we all make bad choices being sure we're making good choices
4: there's another puzzling aspect to the book if you're reading it looking for clues of cather's famous pro-female attitude remember the book's narrator jim Burden, is a guy why julie says again cather's choice here just isn't that simple The job of Jim, she says, is to help us understand and appreciate Antonia. She says Cather wrote about this concept in some of her letters.
3: You can never actually describe beauty. You can only describe how it hits someone. And I think that's what she's doing with Jim, too. Like, if she just tried to describe Antonia, it wouldn't have been as successful. But she's describing how Antonia hits Jim. She's showing how Antonia affects Jim and that's really what tells you about Antonia
5: she had only to stand in the orchard to put her hand on a little crab tree and look up at the apples to make you feel the goodness of planting and tending and harvesting at last all the strong things of her heart came out in her body that had been so tireless in serving generous emotions
4: Moore is a TV writer for shows like God Friended Me and Beauty and the Beast. She's also a playwright, and she adapted My Antonia for the stage. But before she did, she'd never read Cather.
3: It's stunning to me that I'm, you know, somebody who has read widely, read a lot, had never been assigned a book of hers at all. In fact, it, it seems like she sort of was purposefully sort of left out of the canon, and I don't understand it because she's amazing.
4: The book is not sentimental. Allison says it's not snide or snarky. She has a sensibility that is not, to use a TV term, it's not aspirational. The characters just live their lives. It's not until Antonia is 24 and Jim has gone off to Harvard and become a lawyer and is getting ready to leave home for good that he finally confesses to Antonia that he'd really have liked to have had her as a sweetheart or even a wife. Jim and Antonia feel real, like complicated humans who act in confusing ways, The reality is one of the reasons why the book is so
5: good. Do you know, Antonia, since I've been away, I think of you more often than of anyone else in this part of the world. I'd have liked to have you for a sweetheart, or a wife, or my mother, or my sister, anything that a woman can be to a man.
4: When I was in Red Cloud, I also stopped by a small white church. It's not too far outside of town. The landscape is flat, and the building is surrounded by cornfields. So this is the graveyard that refused to bury Antonia's father. I'm looking at graves. Sorensen, mother, father, born in Norway, July 31st, 1824. The reason the characters in my Antonia feel so real is because they are, kind of. It's widely accepted among scholars that Antonia was based on a real woman, She was born around the same time as Antonia. Her father really did shoot himself. Tracy Tucker at the National Willa-Cather Center says that Cather writes in a letter about one of the first things she remembers hearing when she first arrived in town, the story of the suicide of a young girl's father.
3: This is the suicide grave. And so where we're sitting right here, and you can see the boundary line. Um, the real
4: Antonia's the name was Anna so Sadalek Pavelka. And just like Antonia, she had a child out of wedlock with a no-good guy.
6: She was weather-beaten. Her face was, uh, was dark brown from all those years in the sun <laughs> working in the field.
4: Kent Pavelka is a sports broadcaster. He's kind of a big deal in Omaha.
6: Wait for the snap and has an option play to the right side. Tommy on the keep, cuts back. He's inside the 15 to the 13-yard line. The Huskers have a first down. His grandmother was Anna Pavelka. But she um, wore her hair in a bun in the back, and it was white, and it was thin, and she wore house dresses. You know, she she had... she I think she had dentures, but she didn't wear them. She oh. didn't want to wear them.
4: Oh, right, because all the pictures that I've seen of her, she always... It, yeah, it looks like her teeth are missing. Yeah, yeah.
6: yeah. But she would eat dinner with uh, with all of us and there wasn't anything that she wouldn't eat that she couldn't eat even without without her teeth
4: it's unclear if cather first met anna when they were both little girls or later when anna just like antonia was working as a hired girl from one of the families in town but what is clear is that later in 1916 cather decided to visit anna again to pick up their friendship. And whatever happened during that visit made her set aside the book she was working on at the time and start a new one about Anna.
6: It's always described that she is was like the uh, what is the words? What are the u- words they usually use? The inspiration for the story, etc. No, it's not the inspiration. It was it was her, about her life.
4: Cather writes a lot about the beauty and power of what many people write off as flyover country. What about for people who are not? Not from Nebraska, not from farming communities for who farming feels like another planet.
6: I can't deliver them from that handicap. (laughs) Uh, Cather country, it's not, it's something you have to experience. It's being in the country and listening to the fact that there isn't any city noise and that there's something just almost spiritual about the, the, the sounds that you do hear. You know, the wind blowing through the trees and, and the birds
5: and, and the feel of the sun. I was something that lay under the sun and felt it, like the pumpkins. And I did not want to be anything more. I was entirely happy. Perhaps we feel like that when we die and become a part of something entire, whether it is sun and air or goodness and knowledge. At any rate, that is happiness to be dissolved into something complete and great. When it comes to one, it comes as naturally as sleep.
4: This wasn't just Anna's countryside or Antonia's. This land is also where Cather grew up. She was writing about a place she knew and loved. And a century later, it feels both as rich and real and vibrant, but also as quiet and isolated as it did in Cather's time. There's a farmhouse that Cather describes toward the end of the book. It's where Antonia ends up living, later, as an adult. Wow. The real house, the one it's modeled after, is still standing. The house is white and made of wood. It's surrounded on all sides by farms, wow. huge open fields. And cut into the ground outside is a basement door It leads to the steps of a root cellar. Oh my gosh. Okay, so we are going down into um, basically the kind of entrance that looks like people don't normally come back out of. Um <laughs>
3: Look at how pretty the little
4: roots of the grass
3: are growing through the.
4: It looks almost like dewdrops are gathered on yeah. the ceiling. Like someone would pay a very high-end <laughs> party designer to decorate <laughs> to create these kind of little crystal dewdrops all over they there. Really are the ceiling. Like they're things. pretty. They're really pretty. Yeah.: The Shimerda family, they're not all saints, New York Times columnist Brett Stevens again.
7: I mean, the mother is not such a nice lady. The brother is a bit of a jerk. That's also part of life. And, and that's what I thought was so lovely about it, that even if it's politically relevant today, it's not a polemic. It's not an ideological book. It's a human story. That's significant. That's what distinguishes great literature from Uh, propaganda.
4: The reality of all these characters is why 101 years after the publication, there's a national Willa-Cather Center. People drive three hours from Omaha to get there. It's why professors around the country come to yearly symposiums about Cather's work, where they load themselves onto tour buses to visit Cather's childhood home in Virginia, where, of course, they visit the gift shop in the basement.
7: I think there was all kinds of Cather-themed soaps, seems to be the thing.
4: What's a Cather-themed soap?
7: Um, well, this is the song, of, they've named it Song of the Lark, which is one of her novels. Um, let's see, we've got Pioneer Sunset. Um, so Graceful
4: Lena, that's after Lena Lindgard from My Antonia. Oh, I like that. These readers find it impossible to stay away from Cather. Just like in the book, Jim can't stay away from Antonia. 20 years later, after he's left Black Hawk, Jim finally keeps his promise and he returns to her.
2: When Jim and Antonia reconnect after being disconnected for many years, and Antonia says, oh, Jim, isn't it great how much people can mean to one another? I think that, in a nutshell is what the book is about, where its power is. It's about the way people's lives intertwine and the deep connections and meanings those relationships have, how much they mean to one another. And they don't mean one thing. They don't mean a simple thing. They don't just mean love or hate. You know, They mean a lot uh, mixed up together. And I think as we go through life, we realize the truth of that. And though it's somewhat of a simple statement, it's very profound And that, In our lives and what is important about our lives and that book is really about something that simple and that profound
5: I had the sense of coming home to myself and of having found out what a little circle man's experience is for Antonia and for me this had been the road of destiny had taken us to those early accidents of fortune which predetermined for us all that we can ever be Now I understood that the same road was to bring us together again. Whatever we had missed, we possessed together the precious, the incommunicable past.
1: Sally Herships produced our story. Tommy Bazarian read the excerpts for My Antonia. American Icons is made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. And you can find all of our American icon stories and listen to them at studio360.org. Coming up, probably the most important uncredited role in movie making
8: the light. Sometimes you kind of think about it and think, oh, yeah, we could shoot everything early in the day or late in the day and get that low angled sunlight. But sometimes it's better to go for something that's ugly.
1: Cinematographer Roger Deakins, the guy behind the camera for some of the best films of the last three decades. He's next on Studio 360. Studio
4: 360.
6: Cinematographer, um... What does a cinematographer do?
4: Cinematographer and it's films?
6: Movie stuff. It has something to do with uh, arranging the film.
4: I feel like they help mostly, like, the screen readings
5: from production. They're basically in control of the the whole artistic flow of the movie. I, I would just say the general artistic flow.
6: I'm not a movie expert, but I guess that the cinematographers help set up the shots and figure out how things are supposed to look inside the camera.
8: We always joke, as as I get older, the cameras get lighter and digital cameras get lighter still, and it's great. It's great for me because I can still shoot handheld without ruining my back, you know.
1: That last voice is Roger Deakins. He's among the best and definitely one of the best-known cinematographers alive. For starters, he is practically a third Cohen brother. He worked with the Coens on Fargo, No Country for Old Men, True Grit, and nine more films. Over his career so far, he's gotten 14 Oscar nominations and won one Oscar. I spoke to him in 2016 when he had been nominated for his work on Sicario, Denis Villeneuve's thriller about the Mexican drug wars. Deacons told me that new digital cameras have been great
8: for him, but haven't really changed how he does his job. The films I've done... Not so much because I think the filmmaking is still really about capturing that moment. It's not like, okay, you can digitally, you can put on a chip and you can record for 45 minutes and let the camera roll. But you're not necessarily getting that moment. So it's still, you know, doing a feature film is still concentrating on that moment you need to make that scene work, that one performance or that, you know, one thing. You operate the camera yourself a lot, Right. I do always, unless it's on a particular kind of rig, like uh, I don't operate Steadicam, you know, or something. Right. I, y- you don't have to.
1: You could hire a person to be the camera operator. What, what does it give you, uh, either as a fetish object or creatively or what, <laughs> whatever, to, to be
5: <laughs> ho-
8: ho- holding the camera? I mean, I come from a documentary background, right. so I'm kind of used to working instinctively. If an actor is doing something that was unexpected then it's the operator has to make that shot work. Uh I, as a cinematographer, if I wasn't operating, I wouldn't be able to necessarily communicate somebody. Because the time you say something, oh, you know, (laughs) follow him out the room or whatever, or track in or something, I wouldn't have time to communicate that. But if I'm operating, and and I work with an assistant I've worked with now for 15 or 20 years, and a dolly grip I've worked with for 26 years, I can be on a dolly and I can just give a signal... And they'll they'll maybe do a push in, or they'll maybe move the camera in such a way, allowing that act of freedom, but also hopefully complementing what they're doing with with what the camera does. You know, I, I think that's really so much of what I do. It's like a high wire act because any time you could fail completely. Yeah.
1: As I said, you you you've just gotten your thirteenth uh, Oscar nomination for Sicario. Congratulations. Thank you. I, I like the movie very much. Emily Blunt plays this this fairly straight-arrow FBI agent who winds up in Mexico tracking down a drug lord. I'm going to go through a scene and, and play it, and a and yeah, uh, okay. beautiful scene, well, well, one of the many beautiful scenes in the film, where, where Emily Blunt gets up on a roof and is having a smoke and oh, watching yeah, explosions yeah. off in the distance. Want to see something cool?
8: Come on. The total of the scene is shot over two evenings because you couldn't shoot all those shots in one evening within the time frame that you have light for.
1: So she and her colleague are at sunset, basically, are going up for this absolutely d- yeah. vast yeah. western panorama.
8: Yeah. It had to be dark enough that you saw the explosion and the police lights and the shooting.
1: Here we go. Look right there.
8: I mean, this is a shot. We hadn't storyboarded anything. This is just something we constructed as we were there on the day.
6: Unbelievable.
1: I'm staring now at the still, at the end of that scene, of these clouds. It's like a constable painting or something. It's, um, it, yeah, it's
8: extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah.
1: I mean, you must have, did you say, oh, my God, I'm glad we're shooting tonight? Or uh, those kinds of unplanable right. visual right. things must just right. uh, be bliss when they fall into your lap.
8: Right, now that worked well, we had to shoot quite quickly actually because a thunderstorm came in quite soon after we finished shooting and kind of would have almost wrecked the place. (laughs) So we knew the restrictions. Um, Yeah, we were very lucky with cloud formations. When we first discussed the film, we thought that the landscapes and the skyscapes would be very bald, like it would just be plain blue skies and bright dirt landscape and very stark. And it was a particularly um, active monsoon season when we were shooting. So we got these amazing skies and and we both realized that, you know, that we had to use it because we were on a schedule. But it, it really made sense that it made the landscape even more of an, a character than... Yes than we had initially kind of felt it should be, you know.
1: And in a case like that, okay, you shoot the first night, whoa, these amazing multicolored mountains of clouds, great. Yeah. But then you're going to shoot again the next night. Do you worry like, uh-oh, what right. if it's completely oh, blue yeah. it tomorrow?
8: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was a big concern. We were lucky on that rooftop stuff. Uh, the later scene when, uh, is it late or early? When they go to the tunnel.
1: The tunnel that goes under the border, yeah.
8: Yeah, when they're getting out the SUVs in the twilight there. We shot most of the shots on the first evening, again, a block of, you know, an hour, really, to shoot maybe six, seven shots. But on the second evening, we had to do this long tracking shot where they disappear into the darkness. And, of course, the sky was very different, but... Nobody seems to have picked up on that, but it's very different. <laughs> yes, no, we're, it we're, always we're, bugs we're... me, but nobody else.
1: <laughs> uh, now, now you've revealed it. You have busted yourself. Uh,
8: now ruin it for everybody. <laughs> yes, it? Yeah, exactly. You know. No, it's it's yeah. But I obsess about things like that. But you know, in the drama, of the film, you know, it's amazing what you can get away with.
1: Do you have your own ideas of, about you know how things should look that that come up again and again and again?
8: Well, sometimes. I mean, on Sicario, for instance, and sometimes you kind of think about it and think, oh, yeah, we could shoot everything early in the day or late in the day and get that low-angled sunlight. But both Denny and I said, no, we want it to look brutal. We, don't, we want it to look ugly.
1: Denis Villeneuve, the director. Yeah.
8: And sometimes it's better to, to go for something that's ugly. There's a, there's a danger that you just shoot pretty pictures. And you shoot with the best light, the most beautiful light.
1: Right. Is that usually entirely your job or is on hour by hour, minute by minute, do you and the director sort of, eh, no, let's put it here. No, let's do this here. How does that
8: work? Um, It varies. I mean, Joel and Ethan, for instance, have a very clear idea of the, the cutting pattern that they're going to use in the film. The Coen brothers. And they storyboard the whole movie on another film with another director you might leave most of it up to the time you're rehearsing in the morning with the actors on set uh-huh yeah and
1: their films taking the whole oeuvre uh they're, they're so visually distinct uh one from the other you know you the yeah 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 sort of super realistic bright fargo yeah the noir dark yeah. barton fink the the other kind of brightness of no country for all men yeah and on and on which must make it like you worked with them a dozen times, well, but for you it must be I don't know where I'm going to get this time. It's not shooting the same looking film. Time no,
8: time. they're always creating another world, another yeah, another universe to, for the audience. The difference between the man who wasn't there, for instance, and and Barton Fink to True Grit, yeah, yeah and to The Hell Caesar. It's which like, is of whoa, course a, yeah. a comedy about
1: yeah. filmmaking. Um, it takes place in the 1950s, the the, the sort of goldenest age of Hollywood, and we see movies being made, and we see the executives in the offices, and we see sailors and dancing and Romans and chariots and ev- all of that. The, this must have been, from your standpoint, the dream job, because you get to shoot movies within the movie in all different kinds of styles.
8: Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of fun, yeah. I mean, it's also a lot of challenge. I mean, the beginning you kind of thought, oh, Fantastic. Yeah, I get a chance to do that. But then you sort of yeah. look at the logistics of it and then sort of think, oh, my God, how am I actually going to light that? Or how do we actually shoot, you know, a submarine at night, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> so it's, you know. Roger Deakins, it's been great talking to you. And you, and you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks very much.
1: Roger Deakins' newest film is called 1917. It's directed by Sam Mendes, and it's about the First World War. It's shot to look like a single continuous take across battlefields and... Through the trenches. 1917 opens next month on Christmas Day. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI in association with Slate. Our production team here is
3: Jocelyn Gonzalez,
5: Andrew Adam Newman,
3: Sandra Lopez Monsalve.
1: Evan Chubb,
3: Lauren Hansen.
1: Sam Kim
3: Zoe Saunders
1: Tommy Bazarian
3: Morgan Flannery
1: And I'm Kurt Anderson.
0: And he has his finger poking into his stomach, and he's saying, what's supposed to happen when I press my belly button?
1: Thank you very much for listening.
5: PRI Public Radio International
1: Next time on Studio 360...
7: Dickie is that kind of boy that you fall in love with before you realize you shouldn't.
1: The longing for status, beauty, and comfort turns deadly.
7: And When Ripley lashes out at him, it's not that you want him to die, but
1: you're ready for some kind of justice. Twisted reinvention in Patricia Highsmith's Ripley trilogy. An American icon, next time on Studio 360.